1: Hi, and welcome to episode 18. On today's show, I will be interviewing Tony Charnetsky, who is a futurist in the United Kingdom. He's a member of the Chatham House in London and the managing partner of Sustensis, also in London, a think tank for inspirations for humanity's transition to coexistence with superintelligence. Tony is the author of several books on the subject of superintelligence, three of which form the Posthumans humans series. The recently published Becoming a Butterfly is the third and final book in that series, which puts the question of just who we may become after 2050, assuming we survive existential threats. And we know from interviews like the one just finished with Roman Yampolsky how AI could constitute such an existential threat. However, Tony believes that if we do it right, superintelligence will not only protect us from existential risks, but also create unimaginable prosperity, peace, and endless possibilities for human self-fulfillment. Tony and I are well aligned in our hopes and beliefs about the future, so I'm delighted to welcome him to the AI and You podcast. It takes a special kind of person to think that far into the future and then bring it back to what we should be doing now, And that special kind of person would include you because, hey, you're listening to us talk about exactly that. In this first part of our interview, we'll be talking about Tony's book series, what his think tank does, and his thoughts on the impact and consequences of the current pandemic. Let's move on to the interview with Tony Czarnecki. Hello, Tony. Welcome to the show. How are you doing and where are you calling from?
0: I'm calling from London. And the subject of our discussion is the post-pandemic world, which uh, I'm sure that you will have a number of of pertinent questions, and I hope to answer them as fully as I can, although I think we are limited by the time.
1: Yes, indeed, the pandemic is a little bigger than the amount of time that we have available. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would be thinking, post-pandemic, I'm still trying to deal with the during-pandemic part. So you're already thinking about what life is like after the pandemic?
0: Yes, because I think what we are going through right now is of no comparison to what we will be exper- experiencing in the next few months. So I'm normally an optimist, just just to reassure you, but um, I'm also a realist. So I am expecting really unpleasant things to happen to the vast majority of us. And um, the sooner we realize that the world will never be uh, the same as it used to be just a few months ago, the better, because we may perhaps uh, avoid the most disastrous circumstances that otherwise we might find ourselves in.
1: Right. And let's get into how that might be part of the steps towards a post-pandemic world and a broader future. But I want to give our listeners some context first for your background and the work you've done in this. And you kindly sent me a copy of your recent book, but you actually have a series of three. Can you tell us about those?
0: Yes, well, I'm an economist by education and I spent most of my life as a management consultant. And the mission of the company uh, called Sustensis, which is um, still in existence, but is a think tank, used to be a long-term growth to make companies sustainable forever. In quotes, of course. And for the last perhaps 10 years, I've made it my own mission. How about to make humanity to survive forever? And that's how it all began. So, Sustentis gradually has moved from, if you like, economics, finance, and general... Uh, consultancy type uh, business into a think tank that it is today. And is entirely focused on the impact of artificial intelligence on our life and on our future.
1: And that's exactly the material and the subject for this podcast. But most people, even those who are economists or think about the future of businesses, do not think about the future of humanity on such a grand scale. And so you made that jump at some point, and I'm just really interested to know whether you can identify what shift took place in your thinking or what trigger happened that made you start thinking on such a broad, grand scale. Yes.
0: I ask it myself quite often, you know, how I ended up <laughs> like that. I'm formally retired. But I'm full of energy and full of the need to contribute something, to leave something behind that may be worth for life living now. Uh, <clears throat> and that led me to write my first book, um, Who Could Save Humanity from Superintelligence," uh, four years ago. And then it was followed by three books as kind of a series called uh, trans, um, Post-Humans. And they, the first one was titled Federate to Survive, because my view was that the very first step, and we probably will be talking about today, for humans to increase the chances of their survival is to act in a planetary kind of way. So, federate, man, <laughs> if you can. So the second book I was followed on that is, was called Democracy for a Human Federation a proper title perhaps. And the final one uh, released um, uh, last uh, May was, uh, is the Becoming a Butterfly, which is um, extending into the real post-human period while we may be starting living in a digital world.
1: And I love that title, Becoming a Butterfly. Because, right now, I don't think many people would think that we're beyond the caterpillar stage. So, let's look at where we are right now with respect to the global pandemic and our response to it. How do you analyze that with your futurist hat on, in terms of the way that we have responded collectively as a species? Has it brought us together? Has it taught us any lessons? have we learned anything about how to act collectively for our greater good
0: yes people may think that pandemic is a curse uh, because most of this generation uh, or perhaps several generations two or even three generations haven't really even come close to some restrictions even such restrictions that were in place in Britain during the Second World War, where, and after the war, where people have coupons, had to queue up, it's all forgotten. The, the young generation have no idea that there is something called restriction of your freedom in order to survive. And uh, this very basic uh, uh, point of departure for my view on pandemic leads me to a statement that uh, COVID-19 is not a curse, it's a blessing. Yes, many people have died, and uh, I can imagine the horror of their relatives Uh, It is absolutely true. But then if we consider it in a historic perspective, like for instance the Spanish flu, where 3% of the global population died. One of the the largest pandemics, although they were larger in the Middle Ages, 17% in Germany, for instance, died out. Uh, So here, we are talking about a pandemic that has mortality rate at its peak around 10 times the ordinary flu, say 1%, uh, which is now subsiding. but I think it is is perhaps not the right word to use, but I, I would use it. It's a fair price to pay. It's like an insurance policy so that we can make a global test how prepared we are for really fighting for our survival. And this is not a very demanding test. And it has already shown how... Um, unprepared we are, not just in the UK, because I'm speaking from London, but I think in most countries, if you think about the United States, if you think about Italy, apart from China, which I think has done whatever you think about it, they have done an extremely good job. Um, so from that point of view, I think what we are going through right now is nothing in comparison which we'll have to experience in a few months' time when we will have to face the consequences of that pandemic. Not the medical ones, but the economic, social, mental, global, in terms of trade, politics. The world will be shuffled like a pack of cards.
1: Indeed. And as you say, some countries have done better than others. We had as our first guest on this show, Audrey Tang, the information minister for Taiwan, who told us how she had been instrumental in architecting that country's successful response to the pandemic so far. And it actually illuminated a number of approaches that were successful there, but we weren't as adept at adopting in the West due to certain cultural differences. So as you say, it's a high price to pay. But for that price to be worth it, For that suffering to not be in vain, it would have to be preventing something greater. And if we look beyond the pandemic, then the greater thing would be a disruption or transformation globally of what kind?
0: Well, we are now answering uh, not the um, speculation. We are talking almost that something that is tangible. And uh, I name it. It's technological unemployment that, in my view, was to happen in the next five, seven years, but not right now. But pandemics has changed all of that. And the reason, I mean, there are the positive and negative sides of that, of the pandemic, as far as the employment market is concerned and the global trade. Let me start with the positive ones. We have experienced uh, quite a turbulence in the supply chain caused mainly by China. I'll give you one example. To buy a face mask in April in Britain was almost impossible. In a capitalist system where, you know, the demand is the king, and there was a high demand and there was no supply, because the supply chain was 10,000 miles away. that we have learned from that pandemic, that the two hour just in time may be very nice in the time of peace, everything flows fantastically, but we have forgotten that this is almost like a, a, like a miracle, that in the 70 odd years after the war, we are not exposed to anything that has stretched that uh, reliance that everything will run smoothly. Everything has been running smoothly and suddenly it is not. So the consequences of that is that, and the positive one is that we'll be investing a lot in manufacturing in the robotization to get those jobs that went to China back here. Um, And this will be a positive virtual circle because the more robots they will be installed, the cheaper they become. And that's, that's all the critical mass that has been created. Many investors would not invest, especially in, in Britain, because they thought the critical mass is not there. But now it is. In, in the States, it's probably going to be even more profound. And Mr. Trump must be very pleased, perhaps too late for him, that the Rust Belt will be de-rusted. <laughs> And uh, a lot of robots will be there. So that is uh, my uh, positive look at that. The negative one is that millions of people will be unemployed. In the UK, I just uh, heard yesterday, there was an economist saying, perhaps as much as 8% would be unemployed. Well, you can't be serious as uh, Mr. Macron, uh, Mr. uh, what was it, this tennis player name um, McEnroe. McEnroe. (laughs) sir yeah in mrs Thatcher's years we had double-digit unemployment in relatively normal times these are abnormal times when things change at exponential pace and in so many sectors at once i give you one is the uh, office and government sector say uh, where mm, most people go to work say, in the city, in the financial sector. 10 years ago, I said, why are people building uh, skyscrapers in the city of London? This, this, this is a fallacy. This, this, this office will be empty 10 years ago. And my, my understanding was that uh, the uh, robotization, and uh, I didn't know about Zoom then, but anyway, that that it will um, essentially force the employers to deploy the work home, so that people don't have to travel and don't they have to pay for the offices? And that's exactly what happened. Even in in March in London, they opened the very the second largest uh, building, and I was at the opening in at Imperial College when I asked the question, and that was before pandemic really, the 2nd of March, this was one of the last conferences in London. And um, he was confused why I'm asking the question, right? He only had to wait several weeks in order to, to get the answer. And this is an example, what are we talking about? That perhaps a third, maybe a, 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 a half of the working population, the office population will be working from home. And the second aspect is that, I think the unemployment will be in double fidget, digit but it will never, almost never go back. It will grow. And that is where, uh, what very few economists or politicians utter, because it's just incomprehensible. But that's what technological unemployment is going to be. However, on the positive side, and an optimistic one, is that I think if we survive the next 10 years, right, which this decade is going to be the most turbulent. I call it the mature superintelligence decade. Then we will have passed most of the imminent risks and we will start getting benefit of this large scale robotization, AI and so on. So people will be paid, will be secure, and hopefully
1: will be saved. You're covering a lot of territory there. And as the saying goes, That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think that's the guiding principle here. I have the word resilience on my whiteboard at the moment in big letters as a watchword for the immediate future because I hear you saying that the retail infrastructure, the supply chain, the service economy were all optimized around rapid delivery and quick gains but weren't engineered for resilience, weren't engineered for disruptions to global transportation, tariffs or borders closing, and that we neglected that for the sake of what looked like safe gains and profits in the past, and now we're paying the price for that. Another thing that struck me was we're talking about the level of unemployment that we're facing right now, and that's already approaching the levels that the most pessimistic projections for near-term structural unemployment due to automation from artificial intelligence were at. I mean, the biggest number that had much credibility behind it was the 47% from the Oxford Martin program. That was a 10 to 20 year time frame, and now we've had peak levels like that in places during the pandemic, and no one's terribly optimistic about those going back to where they were before. So let's talk about automation here and where it could go. Because AI is one of those things that sparks these continual conversations about being very, very good and very, very bad at the same time. A pandemic is pretty much negative. You can have positive side effects of our response to it, but No one would object if the virus was eradicated and never appeared on this planet in the first place. Whereas AI stands to bring us these enormous benefits, but at the same time, we have to deal with structural unemployment arising from automation. How should we structure our society to be resilient to those effects while getting the benefits?
0: Well, you said structure our society which is a very large subject. Um, Are we talking about the governance? Are we talking about the international relationship? Or are we talking about singular states?
1: Take it wherever you want.
0: Right. Uh, Yes, the the subject is very, very large indeed. And uh, perhaps um, let's look at, uh, at the global stage. What is the impact of things like technological unemployment? And um, uh, many other issues that have come to the fore, like the complete incompetence of certain governments, like the British one, which is just unbelievable. And so little criticism, still so little criticism. That is worrying in itself. Uh, so, what, what it will do, in my view, is not only that uh, the post-pandemic period will be a shock in economic sense, but it will be a shock on the political stage. And by that, I mean that the populists will have to deliver. And that is the most difficult um, part of governing for any party or any shape of, if you like, uh, governance. Um, what Mr. Trump has been promising um, America, like the removal of, or, or replacement of the Rust Belt may actually, to some extent, happen. Not because the, in the way that he wanted it, envisaged it, but because, just coincidentally, because of pandemic, some of the jobs will come back, really, to America. But I'm also talking about the, the friction uh, between the nations and are uh, otherwise quite close, even within the European Union. Um, If you think about this decade, in my view, we are entering similarly, uh, well, very paramount, uh, always paradigm-shifting events in Europe. I think Europe has, European Union, has only two ways to go, either to break up or to federate. Postponing that moment is no longer an option, because the post-pandemic uh, pressure in many areas will force some of the countries to make decisions that are best for them. And I give you one example, uh, and this is the the positive way that I think it may go. Take Germany. Germany think uh, that uh, thinks that they may. Avoid the undue. Uh, some of these the leaders in Germany now think that they may avoid the undue uh, payments to the budget for the country that cannot cope with economic uh, disaster that they may have created previously. And now, on top of that, they have to face the, the post-COVID uh, uh, repercussions. So they may say that if we, for instance, federate the eurozone we will be in charge anyway. But the difference is that we will look very close into the budget of all those countries. Yes, we may pay slightly more, but not for the longer uh, periods. So overall, it may be a better deal for Germany. And that is one way that the Federation of the Union may have in the next few years. I'm not talking about 10, 15 years. Uh, and the second uh, option is, the reverse, like the the Dutch and the Scandinavians, may pull out, saying we no longer want to uh, finance those laggards, uh, and by then by that they mean the the southern belt, if you like, uh, Italy, Greece, and so on, uh, with which France might. Um, uh, uh, cooperate in order to have more influence in that kind of federation, because there is a, an Article 20 in the European in the Lisbon Treaty that allows a minimum of nine countries to exit the European Union and create a federation, and that state may then become a member, will still be a member, but as a state of the European Union. So there are various versions. So the, the third version. Is the most dramatic one is a complete breakout that you may have, say, a number of beneluxes of the European Union, like the northern countries, some southern countries, and so on. That is the, the worst scenario in the area, in the era of um, uh, superinte- uh, of uh, artificial intelligence creating havoc by malicious uh, actors or by, by error, or whatever, and then the, the technological unemployment, and all those semi-existential risks that will come together. And if they combine, you, you may get a, a terrible, terrible uh, situation. And therefore, the disruption of the European Union, the, the fallout of the European Union, will have a mag, magnitude, another magnitude impact worldwide, not just in Europe. So I can see it, you know, both positive and negative outcome, but I think the decision point by 2025 is going to happen.
1: Wow, fascinating. Just for the benefit of some of our listeners that might not have as much of a European background, you refer to Benelux there, which is the Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg group of countries in Europe. And... We're talking about a change in the geopolitical structure and alliances in Europe, which wouldn't have been contemplatable even months ago, but at a time of crisis like this, the last one of this magnitude, World War II, was the last great bout of frontier border drawing. So there may be some more boundaries redrawn by the time we get out of this, do you think?
0: We forget that we did have an actual war for five years in the 90s in the Balkans, which are part of Europe. This is, this is one of the best examples that hadn't we had European Union, there might have been real wars in Europe in the last 70 years. So the raison that for Europe, for the European Union is not in the economic sense, is in a political sense, that people stop fighting each other and rather love each other. Um, In terms of um, the way forward for Britain, because we can talk a little bit about that. This is a mind obviously, and uh, anybody's focus is as good as mine. but uh, I'm a radical thinking and, you know, I stick uh, my head out of the parapet. Um, and I, I think that a lot of good things will happen on the British Island, uh, Isles because of pandemic. Uh, I think the, the, fall, uh, the United Kingdom is to fall apart. Is, I, I can't see how it can be stopped. It's too late. And perhaps it's too late that such a thing is happening. Because we should have had a proper federation, based on equal rights of the nations. And think about Wales and, and Scotland, not so much Ireland. Um, and then uh, the, even the split of the English folk into some shires, largest including London, so that you can balance it. So, Something like that might have happened some time ago, but I don't think it will happen now. It's too late. So my scenario is that, if the European Federation uh, occurs, happens, or if there are even, even the first moves to that, which may happen in 2022, when the current uh, Future of Europe Conference is to end, or 2023, if Scotland sees that, they will have an additional uh, argument to to break out, because they have nothing to lose. And uh, whatever European Union says now, that um, Scotland has to agree with with, um, England to separate, which apparently, uh, legally, it has to do. But there are some lawyers that says, no, it doesn't have to be like that anyway. that uh, would um, also impact what will happen in Europe uh, in terms of federation. Yes, because if the nations of England, including the United Ireland, are in Europe in the in the federation, then it will be a big, big pull for other remaining countries, or E. A. Switzerland uh, and Norway, especially plus the remaining Balkan countries to join. Let me just finalize this uh, uh, vision of uh, a positive uh, move in Europe. Uh, I think I have a lot of respect for Mr. Macron, but in my view, he has gone too far in restricting the remaining Balkan countries to join the European Union. I think we have to play almost the bank, because we have so little time. So it is better to take Albania, Moldova, not the Balkan culture, but uh, Serbia even into the European Union and knowing that they are not really ready. But it is better to have them inside and work with a carrot and stick once they are inside, but uh, mainly with money and avoid the Russian interference in the Balkan affairs. In European affairs generally. So that is my kind of vision for the post-pandemic Europe. Uh, We are not talking about the uh, world affairs, but uh, that's that's probably for a different question.
1: And so many things I'd like to talk about, like NATO, but we need to move on up. But I do have one quick question I can't resist asking. Right now, do you think in Westminster, the Brexiteers, the Leave Party, do you think that they're thinking in the wake of the pandemic, well, that was a great decision, or wish we hadn't done that?
0: If you are talking about MPs, I think they are unreformable. They can't reform. It's it's a faith. It's a belief in something. So rational arguments, I think, won't uh, do any uh, any change in their viewpoint on what needs to be done.
1: I can understand that about the psychology. If you look at it objectively, has the decision to leave the European market, did that play to Britain's advantage or disadvantage, specifically during the pandemic?
0: Well, we could see it. It was a disadvantage. Um, we could see it with the uh, personal protection equipment, almost scandalous. Um, um, perhaps some, somewhat with the uh, supply chain, although we didn't feel it horribly, but it might have ended up horribly. We don't know whether we are out of the woods because we don't know what happens on the 31st of December. If there is no deal and we are still in sort of pandemic period, that, that, that may be additional regret. Why didn't we stay in the European Union? Sure. Um, so, so yeah, Bre- Brexiteers must have, I'm talking generally about the population, might, must have, many of them, must have second view on what has been done to them, especially in the northern part of Britain, which, which is all the uh, hardest affected. What a, what a paradox, and, and what a shame. Uh, I think this is lack of education and the, the propaganda, the Soviet-style propaganda during the Brexit campaign that wasn't resisted properly by the Remainers. And, and this is the result. Well, not only in the UK, but we have the same thing
1: in, in the United States. We'll be talking about disinformation campaigns on another episode, I'm sure. That's the end of part one of the interview. So there was some pretty frank talk about the pandemic there. and. As horrifying as its effects are, how it may be preparing us for dealing with greater challenges. The tragedy is that it has claimed so many lives and so many more people's good health. But like those soldiers who died on Normandy beaches 75 years ago, let's declare that they did not suffer in vain if we can become a stronger species from what we've learned and how we've grown during this time. Clearly, we've got some ways to go with that. In today's AI headline, this time from Technology Review, an international consortium of medical experts has introduced the first official standards for clinical trials that involve artificial intelligence. Right now, hype around medical AI is at a peak, with inflated and unverified claims about the effectiveness of certain tools threatening to undermine people's trust in all of AI. An announcement in the journal Nature plus the British Medical Journal and The Lancet, said that researchers will now have to describe the skills needed to use an AI tool, the setting in which the AI is evaluated, details about how humans interact with the AI, the analysis of error cases, and more. In the last few years, many new AI tools have been developed and described in medical journals, but their effectiveness has been hard to compare and assess because the quality of trial designs varies. For example, the UK-based digital health company Babylon Health came under fire in 2018 for announcing that its diagnostic chatbot was, quote, on par with human doctors, unquote. By separating the good from the bad, the new standards will make independent evaluation easier, ultimately leading to better and more trustworthy medical AI. Next week, we'll conclude the interview with Tony Charnetsky when we'll be talking about some of the history and structure of Europe, models for future governments that can lead to sustainable, viable world economies that lift people up in developing countries so that no one need be left behind as we head towards a future with superintelligence. That's in next week's episode of AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AINU. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more
0: videos and articles at net. That's a i a n d y o u.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.